0: Again, my name is uh, Marshall, and I will be teaching on the passage that Molly just read. I want a couple other announcements real quickly. First of all, uh, if you have never been to a Welcome to Grace, this is an event for folks who are new to the church, who are learning or have simply never been, I'd love to invite you to our home, my wife and I's home, this coming Saturday night. For welcome to grace. It's a casual time uh, to get to know one another. I make a short presentation about the life of the church. It's really a fun evening, so if you've never been, we'd love to have you. Uh, The details are in the bulletin. You can RSVP uh, and show up on, uh, you don't have to RSVP for that matter, but show up at our house on uh, Saturday night. You can see where the sermon's headed next week maybe, uh, because it's definitely still being written on a Saturday night. Um, So that's welcome to grace. Also, uh, this week, Uh, This week on Tuesday at noon, uh, we will have our monthly uh, prayer meeting. We're going to have a a congregational meeting after the service today. And I'll uh, name some items for prayer at that service. But then uh, we do this periodically. We have a meeting of prayer and fasting. There's a weekly prayer meeting at noon uh, in the West Hall. uh, But every so often, usually once a month, we actually Zoom everybody in who would like to join, ask more folks to come. Uh, So this Tuesday at 2, excuse me, this Tuesday at noon in the west hall or there's a zoom link in the in the grace email uh, that you can zoom in if you're uh, traveling or downtown or something just want to zoom in for a 30-minute prayer meeting for the church i'd encourage uh, those who are willing uh, to think about uh, skipping breakfast that morning and praying for the church we'll talk more about that at the congregational uh, meeting let me pray for us before we look at this passage god we come now we're thankful that we are safe and able to uh, come and worship you here and to be with your people, to see the excitement of new members joining and baptism. Uh, Lord, we grieve as we uh, celebrate the passing of, uh, and grieve the passing of Ann Williams. Uh, God, our thoughts and prayers are also with the victims of the shooting and their families in California this morning. God, have mercy. Uh, It is so dreadful to wake up and check the news and to see such another disaster. But We have come now hoping that you would meet us in your word, and we pray that you would do that. We pray that you would make these words live for your sake. We pray, Amen. This year, my uh, wife and I will celebrate ten years of marriage. Ten years of marriage—that's you know—that's that's something, and uh, you learn a lot in ten years of marriage. And one of the things that I've learned is about love languages. Uh, I don't know. I did not know much about love languages before I got married, but I now know the love language. I know that I could, I, you could wake me up in the morning. What are the five love languages? I could rattle them off. They are words of affirmation. They are touch. They are quality time. I'm going to forget them. Uh, they are gifts, and they are acts of service, okay? Apparently, I don't have them, and I knew nothing about this when I got married. I wonder. do you know what your love language is? Do you know what your spouse's love language is? If you've been married for any length of time and you have a happy marriage, you do know. Um, but one thing you learn about marriage is, uh, in marriage is that your spouse doesn't necessarily have the same love language that you do. Uh, I am an acts of service guy. I love to receive acts of service. And I actually like to do acts of service. And especially in the first years of our marriage, I would do something for Allison and it just wouldn't register. Like, it's like, like you know, no, no, no nothing. Nothing was, like, no. She's like, I want words of affirmation. She's like, but I'm doing this for you. No, that's not how I feel and experience love. You learn in marriage, you have to love your spouse the way they want to be loved, the way they experience love. Now, we are three weeks into a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. And I wonder what you think about the Ten Commandments, even that phrase, the Ten Commandments. I dredged up in my files this week. A series of articles, uh, 10 articles, 20 years ago that the New York Times did. They did one article a day about the Ten Commandments and modern life. This was in 2002. Hard to imagine them doing that today, but it was really interesting to go back and look at this. And this is from, let me read from the intro article. This is 10 days in the Ten Commandments in the New York Times, December of 2022, uh, 20, uh, 2002. More than 3,000 years after they were written, the Ten Commandments have a haunting power. Capturing many of the deep spiritual and moral dilemmas that beset humankind. For some, they are divine laws, handed down by God to Moses that cannot be questioned but must be obeyed. For others, they are important religious precepts. And for still others, the commandments are quaint and anachronistic, serving as little more than guides, if that, in the effort to live a moral life. End quote. What do you think, what do you feel about the Ten Commandments. I actually find the Ten Commandments, this is a little bit weird maybe, maybe it's because I'm a preacher, I find them relevant and compelling. Uh, Anytime we use the Ten Commandments as the confession of sin, as we did today, we're actually doing it for the whole month of January, we will move on in in, uh, February, uh, but every time we use the Ten Commandments as the confession of sin, I really find it easy to see myself in the Ten Commandments. I find it easy to find my shortcomings and to see how Jesus fulfills that particular commandment. I like doing it. I mean, if you go, you know, first commandment, no other gods. I see that real quickly in my life. My tendency towards idolatry, to put something in God's place. The fourth commandment, honor the Sabbath, rest. Absolutely see my tendency to workaholism and not resting. Ninth commandment, don't lie. Not easy, not hard for me to see that in my life. But the commandment we look at this week... The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down or serve it. I mean, I think in the Ten Commandments, before this week, I would have said, this is the uh, command I'm least likely to offend. Uh, Like, what's the commandment you're least likely to sin against? For me, I felt like, before this week, it was the second commandment. Don't worship carved images. I don't know about you, I do not have a totem pole in my closet that I'm bowing down to. There's no maypole in my backyard, okay? I don't feel like I'm tempted by this command. I literally thought to myself at the beginning of the week, I was like, I don't think I've ever broken this commandment. <laughs> Au contraire. Um <laughs> It's good for me to dig deeper this week. It always seems good to dig deep in God's Word. I love what John Piper says somewhere. I could never find it probably. But he says, if you're ever puzzled by a passage and you don't understand what it means or why it's there, pull up a chair and wait and worship until God shows it to you. And what I came to realize this week is that the first commandment is primarily about who to worship. To not have idols to worship the living and true God. You shall have no other gods before me. But the second commandment is not who to worship, but how to worship that God. And like your spouse or your children care about how you express love, God actually cares about how we love and worship Him. And the reason is because what we think about God and how we worship God is determinative for so much of our life. God cares how we worship Him. So this morning, I want us to see three things. I want us to see the significance of worship, the distortions of false worship, and then finally, the redemption of worship. The significance, the distortions, and the redemption. First, the significance. I'll move pretty quickly here. To understand this command, you actually kind of have to understand the first command. You have to understand that there's something universally true about every person in this room, every person you have ever laid eyes on or shook hands with or watched on the TV screen, every person throughout all time. And that is this, Everyone, everyone, without fail, without exception, everyone worships. We are all worshipers. To worship is human. Now, the word worship is a loaded term. It's kind of a churchy word. You're like, I'm coming to worship this morning, right? Uh, But worship is not just singing songs and coming to a worship service. Worship is to love something above all else. To worship something as the still point of your turning world. It is a non-negotiable at the center of your life. It is your precious, the unconditional condition, your first priority. It may be a thing, it may be a person, something before which you bow and will serve at all cost. It's like a default setting for all of us. Now our best thinkers have said different ways this going all the way back to this command 3,000 plus years ago the first commandment I am the Lord your God you shall have no other gods before me. It's acknowledging that worship is a thing for all of us. Now I was going to go through a list of quotes from the history of the church uh, Augustine Luther but I'm going to kind of speed up a little bit closer to our day. I think actually the most trenchant quote that I've come across on worship, uh, interestingly, it comes from a former prime minister of the UK, Benjamin Disraeli, 150 years ago. I had to wonder, actually, if, if, when you're the head of a state, as the prime minister of England is, when you're the head of a state, if you actually see things a little differently, you have to think about people and what motivates them. And this is what Benjamin Disraeli said 150 years ago. Man, mankind, is made to adore and obey. But if you give him nothing to worship... He will fashion his own divinities and find a chieftain in his own passions. Let me read that again. We are made to to adore and obey. And if you give us nothing to worship, we will fashion our own divinities and find a chieftain in our own passions, a leader in our own passions. Okay, Benjamin Disraeli 150 years ago couple other more recent, uh, let me quote the high priest of the boomers. I'll try to do generational here. The high priest of the boomers, is, of course, is Bob Dylan. Um, you got to serve somebody. you got to serve somebody, Bob Dylan's saying. It might be the devil or it might be the Lord. He goes through this whole list, but you got to serve, worship somebody. Fifteen years ago, one of the more recent, and I quote this probably twice a year, uh, this is my generation, Generation X, David Foster Wallace said this, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually, he was not a Christian, not a believer, he said there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. End quote. And David Foster Wallace in that very famous speech goes on to list all the major options, all the major religions plus money, power, sexual allure, achievement, autonomy, goes on and on. We all worship. But even down, Gen Z, Millennials, uh, I could use Justin Bieber. I could use Lizzo. Lizzo actually has a song called Worship. Some of you don't know who Lizzo is. Um, But she has a song called Worship. You see, this command, the first command, assumes that all of us, every person that you've ever met, at the core of their being, they are created to love, to obey, to worship something or someone. I mean, one of the reasons that Christianity appeals to me is it deals with reality. And in this first commandment is rubbing our noses in the reality of who we are. We are worshipers. We are worshipers. It is true of the deepest part of who we are. And it's not only that we are worshipers. You can't repress it. You, can't, you want to worship. Because don't we all want to lose ourselves in some great feeling? Whether it's at a crowd, a concert, a sporting event, a great performance. We want to lose ourselves in something greater than ourselves. We want that feeling. And the reason is you were made to worship. You were made to worship. And friends, as Nick alluded to last week, the Ten Commandments are given to us in love. Given to us in love. And the first commandment is maybe the most loving thing that God has said so far in the Bible. You shall have no other gods before me. You're made to worship. And you were made to worship the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God who created all things. And friends, He is the only thing worthy of your worship. He's the only thing deep enough. He's the only thing wide enough. He is the only thing big enough. Worship God and Him alone. He deserves your full worship. Because if you look to other things, if you worship other things, they will disappoint you, they will destroy you. You worship popularity. It will eat you alive. You worship money. It will rob you blind. You worship sex, sexual allure. You worship your job, achievement. Worship your children. Worship your alma mater, your sports team. All of those things, at the end of the day, they will leave you flat. They will leave you diminished in a distorted view of yourself. Yourself. The Bible talks a lot about idolatry. Psalm 115 has this great line. Psalm 115.8 says this. Those who make idols, those who worship idols, become like them. Those who worship idols, you become what you worship. You be, you just like you are what you eat, you become what you worship. You ever seen somebody who just the way they look, it just embodies what it is that they worship? My uh, wife is away on a girls weekend. And she's down in uh, South Florida in Fort Lauderdale uh, with some girlfriends. And I was talking to her last night on the phone. And I was like, how is it? She said, it's 80 degrees. I said, shut your mouth. Um, I don't need any more of this. She said, it's 80 degrees. And they're walking along. If you've been to Fort Lauderdale, you're walking along the canals. And she said, it is just amazing, the yachts and the homes. They're just massive, right, Fort Lauderdale. And she says, but there's something that's just so sad about them. These temples to achievement, these temples to wealth and privilege, but then you look and you're walking along the canals, lights are on home, nobody is home. There's nothing lifeful about it. It is lifeless. We become like the things that we worship, and they don't give us life because they're not big enough. Because... Uh, maybe because we're talking about new elders and our, our standards and the, the, even the members joining today, I've been thinking about our, the standards, the belief standards of our church. And we are governed by what is called the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Westminster Catechisms, larger and shorter. And the Shorter Catechism has probably the most famous uh, question and answer in religious history. Westminster Shorter Catechism, number one, what is the chief end, what is the chief purpose of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What is your chief purpose? What is the chief purpose of humanity? To glorify God and in so doing enjoy Him forever. Friends, until you worship the living God fully, you'll never find the ultimate joy of your life. It's not just that we glorify God. It's that we also, in glorifying God, we find who we were created to be. We have finally encountered something, someone that is big enough, deep enough, wide enough to match the massive longings that are in all of our hearts. Worship is so significant because you were created for it. Friends, you were made to worship. And the object of that worship is designed to be God. Anything else will fall flat, diminished, distorted. So the first commandment is who to worship. The second commandment is God telling us, How to worship. Which brings us to, secondly, the distortions of false worship. Let me read the first part of this commandment again. Second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or earth beneath or is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Okay? First commandment, don't worship other gods. Don't do idolatry. Second commandment. This is odd. Don't worship the true God using visible representations. Said another way, don't make the invisible God visible. Don't try to do that. Worship God the way He says. Now, God is super keen to guard this. Don't make into me, don't make me a graven image, God is saying. And this, this is why it's so important. Because how and what we think about God. How and what we think about God determines everything. How and what we think about God, it has a massive impact. It's so massive, I find this fascinating. This is the only commandment of all the Ten Commandments that speaks of the generational impact of keeping this commandment. This is the only one. Look with me, I'll keep reading. Chapter 20, verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Okay. I mean, this is a, this is important for us. He's saying it's so important that this is going to impact your children, and your grandchildren, and your children's grandchildren. That those are things that matter to me. And he's saying, pay attention. Why is it so serious? Because the way we think about God and worship God determines so much of our life. Determines everything, and how we do it will impact the generations. So you see, of all the things, though, it's interesting, though, but if you think about it, I mean, of all the things that God says about how to worship him, of all the things he could prohibit, why does he prohibit carved images? I thought about trying to be funny here, but I couldn't think of anything funny. But, like, like, if you like what are all the things that you think God might prohibit? Like, you, I don't know what your, like, worship pet peeves are, but, like, you know, you would slide them in there, right? But why is it that he, if he's going to prohibit one thing in worship, why is it carved image? Why can, why can we not make an image of God? Well, obviously, first of all, because God says so, and he gets to say how to worship him. If my wife says she wants words, it's words that she gets, okay? If God says he wants no images, it's no images that he gets. But I think let's dig a little deeper, because using an image to, to worship God, there's a couple other things it does. The first thing it does is it diminishes God. To worship God as an image diminishes him. God is incomparable. He is infinite, infinite. He is eternal. He is unchangeable. He is without body, without parts, without passion. He is the living, speaking God. And to reduce him to a lifeless statue that cannot speak, it diminishes him. I mean, how do you represent a God who can do all things with something that can do nothing? To make an image is to neuter God or to try to. It diminishes God. Now you're like, well, okay, fine. But I still don't make images. I don't make totem poles. Hold, hold, hold. We're coming back to the images that we make in just a moment. So the first thing that making an image does is it diminishes God. It reduces him. The second thing that making an image of God does is it distorts him. It distorts him because any image, any image necessarily conceals more than it reveals. If I'm going to paint a picture of you, It'd be really bad, okay? And I would not reveal much about you at all. I would conceal so much about who you are. But even if you were Rembrandt, even if you were Van Gogh, there's something that is missing when an image is captured. It conceals more than it reveals. And if you present God as a a bull, right, you can capture God's power, but not his beauty. I mean, you can capture his power, but not his purity, or his beauty for that matter. Or if you were to put on that image of God smiling, you could capture God's love and his joy, but you'd have no place for his holiness or his wrath. Or if you made that God frowning, you might capture his justice, but not his grace. You see, to, con- to make an image is to conceal more than reveal. It can't do anything but distort. And friends, a distorted view of God is at the root of all of our problems. This is the most basic problem we have, is that we distort our view of God. There's so many things that are fascinating for me about this commandment. It's the only one with generational implications. It's the one that makes the least sense to me. But there's also this. This is actually the first command that we see broken in the scriptures. After the Ten Commandments, the first thing we see broken is the story of the golden calf. This is the first commandment that actually gets broken. So if you're not familiar, let me back up. This is going to be quick, but it's important. Remember the story. Exodus chapter 20 comes after the people have been redeemed from Israel. Let me go back even further than that for just a moment. In the fall, we did a sermon series on the life of Jacob. Okay, and Jacob lived in what is we call present day Israel, or what we call present day Palestine. And at the end of Jacob's life, there'd been a massive famine in what we today call Israel. There'd been a massive famine. Okay, and so they, he and his whole family they fled to Egypt to ride out the famine. Okay, they left. There's a famine in the promised land, so they go to Egypt to escape the famine. They stay there for 400 years, and they get used to living near the Nile River. They get used to living near that irrigation system. But then God delivers them from bondage, takes them back to the promised land. And right now, they're three months removed from Egypt. I know this is a lot to take in. They're, they're three months removed from Egypt. They're in the wilderness, and they're headed back to where? The last time this group of people had been there, there had been a famine. Okay? They're at Mount Sinai. They've been gone for three months. Now, 40 days, 40 days after Moses, God gave the Ten Commandments, Moses is still up on the mountaintop with God, okay, getting the rest of the law, the tabernacle, everything else. He's been gone for 40 days. And the people come to Moses' brother, a guy named Aaron, and they say, make us a God. We're not sure what's happened to this guy, Moses. And so it's 40 days removed from the Ten Commandments. Three months removed from the deliverance from Egypt. And so Aaron asks for all their gold and jewels, and he fashions a golden calf. It most likely looked like a bull. Now make sure you understand this. That calf was not an idol. It was meant to look like God. When Aaron presents it to them, he says, this is is for the festival to Yahweh. He uses God's covenant name. This is about what God looks like, not an idol. This is what I think God looks like. Let me skim read a little bit from the story. This is Exodus 32. Exodus 32. Aaron received the gold, he fashioned with a graving tool, he made a golden calf. These are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He's saying, this is God. He says, tomorrow there will be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. That is the Bible's nice way of saying debauchery and orgies, Okay. Here's what's happening. The people, they are depicting God. They're making an image of God, but they're doing it in their own image. They are distorting God's revelation of himself. Now, what's, okay, stay with me. What they've done is they have taken the image they've seen in other countries, most likely the, the, the god of Egypt, the bull god of Egypt, which was named Apis, Or maybe even more likely Baal or Baal, the Canaanite god. And they've seen that god because he was worshipped in Canaan. They've seen the god of the bull and they want a god like that. And so they make this bull. They want to be like the other nations. But the thing to primarily understand, especially about Baal or Baal, is Baal is a fertility god. Baal is a fertility god. They want fertility in all senses. They want the rain because they're afraid of going into the famine of of this new land, the place of famine. But they also want God to bless them fertility with procreation and also sensual pleasure. That's what Baal represents: rain, procreation, sensual pleasure. Remember, they've left the Nile Delta. They've left the irrigation and They're in the middle of the wilderness. They got mouths to feed. And this dude, Moses, is still on the mountain. They have zero feud security. And they also they want to feel good, they want to be happy. The golden calf, the first breach of the Ten Commandments after their giving is about security and feeling good. It's about making God an image of something that gives you security and helps you feel good. It's not, they're not saying we don't want God. They're saying we want God plus security and feeling good. You see where this starts to cut home? They are just like you and me. What do we want? We want to feel secure, and we want to feel good. We want to feel secure and good, and so we make God in our image. And the reason, friends, that God prohibits image-making, because any image that we make of God is an attempt to control Him for our purposes, to say this is what God is like. Now, we may not carve totem poles, but we are forging images of God in our hearts and in our minds to make us feel good to help us feel secure because i'm guessing that most of us if you're like me you don't want to reject the living god but you may want to diminish him a little bit and distort his image in my life not to reject him but just to add to him it's like adding a filter on instagram or something like you know photoshopping i want to make him a little different you know i need something a little fresh Uh, This is a different situation. I need something new here, God. I mean, let's look at this in a different way. And I think there are both passive and active ways that we distort and diminish the image of God. Both passive and active. Let me give you a couple passive ways that we distort and diminish the image of God. First, passively, we worry. We worry because when we worry, what, what, what is our view of God? That either God is not able to care... Or he doesn't care. That is the distortion. And because we worry, we don't really believe that God's going to take care of us, what do we do? We distort the image. We buy lines like, God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. And we try to secure ourselves, right? We, we, have, we think that God's not going to take care of us, and so we distort his image, and we do things because we really do act like God helps those who help themselves. I mean, how many of you, be honest, don't raise your hands, could tell me within... A zero, or what, How many of you could tell me what your net worth is right now? A lot of you. I probably could tell you mine. We know because that's our security. And I'm not saying that's bad. It's good to plan. But there is a danger in thinking that I have to have this because I don't trust that God is good enough, powerful enough, or cares enough. And so we worry about our money, our children, everything else. That's the first passive distortion. Another passive distortion, a little different vein, is our self-loathing. We're so hard on ourselves. And why? Because we have a diminished image of God. God could never forgive me for that. God could never accept me because he knows how how awful I am on the inside. And so that's the diminishment of God. And so what do we do? We think he can't accept us. He can't love us. He can't wash us. He can't sanctify us. So what's the distortion? I will atone for myself. I'll make myself better because God cannot ever forgive me. God cannot ever love me. The passive distortions. But then there are also the active distortions and diminishments. Things don't go our way. We don't feel good about something. Something happens. And we simply and consciously say no to God. No more. I will do what I will do. We make a God in our own image. We take the living God or we discard him. But we take the living God and we add something to him. And I'll tell you the four categories this most often happens in. Money, sex, our children, and our health, the way that we feel and those that we love, how they feel. Those four things, money, sex, children, and our health, and the health of our loved ones. And when something happens in those areas, we say, no more God, I got it from here. And we actively distort God make God into our own image. And friends, what we need is not a diminished or a distorted view. We need a full, undiminished, undistorted. He loves you. He accepts you. He cares about you. He will provide for you. He gave his son. He is the living God. We have this view of God that he has just shriveled up in our minds. And so we need we need a more full image of God. And in the fullness of time, God gave us just that. God gave us just that. You see, and this comes to the last point, the redemption of worship. The reason behind the reason behind the reason of why God prohibits the worship of images when we worship Him is it because one day, 1,500 years after the, the giving of the Ten Commandments and 2,000 years ago, God was going to give us an image of himself. And what he's saying to these people and to us is just wait and look at my son. He will show you what I'm like. He is the image of the invisible God, as Colossians chapter 1 says. One of the things that's interesting, next thing that's interesting to me about this passage, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure this is the first instance that we have God saying that he loves his people. We have instances of God actually loving, doing the action, but this is the first time that he says this of himself. Look with me at verse 6. He says, I am given myself in loving kindness to those who obey this commandment. This is the first place God describes himself as actually loving. Because in the fullness of time, Colossians 1.15, he would send Jesus who is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 2.9, that in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Hebrews chapter 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. You see, friends, Jesus reveals who God is to us. We like to think to say that Jesus is God, and that is true. But it is also true to say that God is Jesus. And he reveals the fullness of who God is. His love, His mercy, His wrath, His justice. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is Psalm 85.10. Psalm 85.10, it takes these contradictory things that don't ever seem to be able to be reconciled. It says, steadfastness, love, and faithfulness. Righteousness, and peace. Those things don't seem to be able to be reconciled in one person. You can't be both just and loving. Because if you're fully just, you'll diminish your loving. If you're fully loving, you can't be just. But Psalm 85, 10 says that those things have met together and they have kissed. And where have they kissed? In the person and the work of Jesus who is the image of the invisible God. He is God. And he is worthy of our worship. And the amazing thing is this. That if you are a follower of Jesus, you are day by day being remade into his image. Colossians chapter 3. We have put on the new self. We are being renewed in the knowledge After the image of our creator. You shall not make for yourself carved images. Images of God that distort and diminish. I want to give you a couple things practically as we go out the door. Three things, three little steps. Do the hard work. I'm still doing it, frankly, for myself. But do the hard work of asking yourself the question, Where do I have a diminished view of God? Where do I have a distorted view of God? Start by looking at places like what you worry about, where you're tempted to loathe yourself, where you're tempted to take pride in yourself. Where do you diminish God, where you distort him? Once you've identified it, once you've identified it, put Jesus in that hole. Realize that Jesus is the fullness, that he is the exact representation of God, and that is how we understand who God is for us and has created us, to be, Because as we do that more and more, we stop worshiping the images that we create and we stop worshiping the God who is and who wants to love us fully as he has fully given himself to us in the person of his son. Let me pray for us. God, in many ways, this passage, the, this command is its a little more abstract than the others. How we worship you but it's so central, God, to the very motivation of our heart, how you have created us to be. And so I pray for all of us that we would examine ourselves to see where we diminish, where we distort, so that we might see the fullness of your salvation for us in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.